As we continue to work our way through 1 Corinthians, let me pray for the reading of God's word. Father, we, as we come before your word, we humbly ask that you might allow us to set aside all those things that distract us, challenging relationships and situations of the week past, or the anxious anxieties that await us in the coming weeks. Father, things that might blind us to your word now, we ask that you would humble us, that we would be willing to submit to your word, that we would be able to be led by your spirit, that you would both rule and overrule in our lives with your word, molding us and making us into the image of your son. This we pray, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. This is the word of God. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, To another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same spirit. To another, faith by the same spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one spirit. To another, workings of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of spirits. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. The word of the Lord. Allow me to pray for the preaching of God's word. Father, as my words are true to your word, may they be taken to heart. But if my words should stray from your word, may they be quickly forgotten. I pray this in the name and in the power of Jesus Christ. Amen. When I was taking a course at uh, Air War College, Uh, one of the things that we were looking at, which is just part of the ongoing education in the military, we were looking at the idea that's regularly floated around in the military. An idea, a phrase, diversity makes you stronger. And I remember the irony in some of the tone and the voices and the teachings of the instructors there, uh, trying to dance around that statement. Uh, On the one hand, they realized that, that diversity uh, is importance, the importance of affirm, in affirming diversity in a military setting. Uh, but on the other hand, recognizing that study after study shows that diversity by itself rarely benefits a company or a group of thinkers or a bunch of people on the board of directors. What is needed to bring productivity, what is needed to solve problems, is a unified commitment to a few essential ideas. It is unity of purpose. It is unity of conviction that allows members from diverse backgrounds to work together productively. 
unity and diversity. It's beautiful when a church achieves a unity of its confession, uh, recognizing that they're headed in the same direction, believing the same things, and then living out that confession through a diversity of giftedness. Unfortunately, what is more often the case is a profound diversity in its confession, a diversity both in attitudes with some people saying, it doesn't really matter what you believe, and others saying, you have to believe exactly like me, and a diversity in terms of the content, the doctrinal positions themselves, which run the gamut of ideas. This was, it is a dilemma for us in the modern church, but Paul seems to let us know that it was a struggle in the early church as well. One particular problem that Paul seems to be addressing in this section of his letter is a double error. The double error of the Corinthians placing, on one hand, too much emphasis on the spiritual gifts of tongues, and secondly, of boastfully or pridefully holding and boasting in one's giftedness. And so Paul strives to set the record straight, to help the Corinthian church realize that it is the Holy Spirit that leads and gives believers the gift of unity, the gift of unity in confession and in the diversity of his gifting. That truth, rightly understood, will make a difference in our lives. In other words, both our theology and our spiritual giftedness comes from the Holy Spirit. And so there's no point whatsoever in our pride or in our boasting. Paul starts off this section with the phrase, now concerning spiritual gifts. Uh, This is the same phrase that Paul first introduced in chapter 7, verse 1. He writes this. He says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. It appears to be a phrase that Paul uses when he's introducing topics to answer specific questions that people had written to them. He uses this to introduce the topics such as marriage, sexuality, food offered to idols, gifts in our area, uh, in, in our text today, and several other topics which will follow. Paul is announcing that he's moving to directly address a particular question about a specific issue in this church. There are times in his letter where he steps back and speaks to issues more broadly But it is important to remember that in this section of his letter to Corinth, he is first concerned with answering a specific question that they asked. The challenge is we don't have a copy of that specific question. But you can sense Paul's concern by how he starts off this passage. He says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. And so Paul, right off the bat, is clearly stating that he cares about what they believe. What you believe, what you profess, really does matter, which is why he does not want them to be uninformed. His particular argument, that answer to their question, appears to go from here, chapter 12, verse 1, all the way through chapter 14, verse 40. If that's the case, then as New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce points out, that his answer to their question about spiritual gifts will include that beautiful chapter on love 
in chapter 13. In other words, Bruce would conclude that Paul's answer to their question, whatever that question may have been, quote, is that the primary token of the indwelling spirit, the indispensable evidence that one is truly spiritual, is not tongues, but love. And I think over the next several sermons, we'll see that love, both love for God and love for our neighbor, ought to be the unifying aspect of the Christian church. It's not a mindless or pathetic, or by that I mean purely emotional love, but rather a doctrinally rich love because it understands the loveliness of God and understands God's gracious love for us such that we can live our lives responding in love. With a specific reference to our text, many scholars feel that Paul's answer is worded in such a way that shows that the Corinthians took for granted that tongues, and most would agree tongues is defined as utterances in languages not normally spoken, they believed that that was the sign, the sure sign of the indwelling spirit. And Paul is writing to correct their assumption. And he does so first by leading them to that principal confession of a believer, which is in verse 3. The principal confession is Jesus is Lord. But to get there, he takes them on a brief journey in thought. You can see that in verse 1. I do not want you to be uninformed, or essentially, I do not want you to remain in your ignorance or remain in your error. And then to bring them to his main point, next in verse 2, he takes them to something in which they knew very well. They knew their lives as pagans. Uh, Paul reminds them of their previous spiritual lives, their previous practices. As pagans, they were led astray to mute idols. Paul's already mentioned the notion of pagan idolatry before. He's talked about that a lot with food being offered to idols. And he's made the point that while there's not actually other gods, there are demonic forces that seek to lead us. And so here he speaks of the mute idols, bringing into mind the absurdity of worship, worshiping idols, uh, places like, for instance, in Isaiah 44, where that's, there's that beautiful and almost comical story of the craftsman who takes a piece of wood and he cuts it in half. And half he throws it into the fire to warm himself and cook meat. And the other half he fashions into an idol. And then he falls down and he says, he cries out for that piece of wood to save him. We can shake our heads at the absurdity of worshiping something that we've made. But Paul is equally or hunting at the equally absurd notion that many believers have in the selfish pride of their own convictions. I'm struck and at times guilty myself of arrogant pride of right theological belief. Now, don't get me wrong, Reformed thinkers don't have the corner on the market of spiritual arrogance. But when you believe, that everything you have is a gift from a sovereign and gracious God, that theological position itself should keep us from boasting. And yet we do. Paul also uses the phrase here, however you were led, to highlight that part of those pagan rituals that the people knew. For instance, the worship of the god Apollo involved ecstatic 
utterances and these spiritual trances that people would get into. And Paul reminds them that that former practice that undoubtedly some in his audience would have engaged in prior to coming to faith in Christ really has no part in Christian worship. F.F. Bruce on this note points out that, uh, makes the point that Paul is declaring, quote, ecstasy or enthusiasm is no criteria of spirituality. Attention must be paid to the words spoken. New Testament scholar Gordon Fee makes a similar point. He writes, quote, It is not inspired speech as such that gives evidence of the Spirit. What counts is the intelligible and Christian content of such utterances. There is room for discernment here. You can think about your Christian faith. Now, the point that Paul is also making is we are often too, or too, all too often carried away by enthusiasm. I remember one of our seminary professors who said with a twinkle in his eye as he pounded the pulpit, boldly presented as half-proved. And you know that to be true as well. Many of you have felt that pressure of somebody earnestly and sincerely pleading with you to agree with them on some issue or some point. And this was apparently a real problem in Corinth. And Paul, by way of contrast, in verse 3, reminds us that the Holy Spirit leads us as well, but not into confused utterances, but into a unity of our confession. He leads us towards something positive, and he prevents us from something negative. So he moves us to say Jesus is Lord, and he keeps us from saying Jesus is accursed. Many have wondered, why would anybody who identifies as a Christian ever even say Jesus is accursed? Why would Paul include this? That question has mystified the scholars, and there are conjectured possibilities that are numerous. One writer, theologian, listed 12 possibilities and then ended by saying he's not sure about any of them. It seems to me that the two most likely ideas are either one, that many in the Jewish faith were seeking inroads into the Christian church in an attempt to bring Christian converts back into Judaism. So at some point, they would have to confront the identity of Christ and might have to even say, Jesus is accursed. After all, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Another possibility uh, to follow the idea of the historian Pliny, is that during times of persecution, uh, believers, when caught, were given a choice to either curse Christ and then be released or have their penalties minimized or to be executed. And so that may have been a real temptation. But in either one of those cases, Paul points out that when a person is led by and surrendered to the Holy Spirit in their life, no one will curse Jesus, surrendered to the Spirit. Rather, they will bless the name of Jesus by rightly declaring that he is their Lord. This declaration of the Lordship of Christ, New Testament scholar Leon Morris remarks, is no human discovery. 
It can only be made by the Spirit working in their lives. That's also enhanced, that idea is enhanced by New Testament scholar Thistleton and others. They remark that when somebody confesses that Jesus is Lord, it carries the implication that they are then his servants or his slaves. And that idea of being a genuine servant of someone will impact their trust, their obedience, their commitment, their loyalty, and their reverence to Jesus if we acknowledge him as the Lord who has complete care over our lives, both the care and the charge of our life. The idea, that idea rather, of the lordship of Christ is definitely out of vogue in the American Christian church. We prefer a Christ who is on our side, who comforts us, aids us, helps us achieve our dreams, a Christ who enjoys our pleasures and supports us as long as, uh, supports us rather in the accomplishing of our goals. Uh, Don't get me wrong, we're happy to give him some of the credit as long as uh, he's moving forward with our plans. But the idea of sacrificial service The idea of having a relationship with Christ that is costly. The idea of an awkward conversation with someone. Of risking being a social outcast. Of foregoing luxury to aid another. That's outdated. That's unnecessary. That's too extreme. I've decided to follow Jesus as long as he's headed in the direction I want to go. That's likely how we would change that hymn. Paul keeps his argument moving forward. And in verse 4, he begins to transition towards the giving of diverse gifts. But notice that what he's highlighting is the unity in the midst of that diversity. And this is done by the repetition of that phrase, the same spirit. You can see it in verses 4, verses 8, verses 9, and verse 11. And Paul also, as he talks about this unity, he masterfully, beautifully, and it appears effortly introduces to us well, really to the church in Corinth, but we benefit the beautiful gift of his Trinitarian understanding. You can see that in verse 4 through 6. We highlighted that on the cover of the bulletin. And Paul writes, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Now, at one level, those things given, the gifts, service, and activities, they're likely referring to the same thing, at least the same type of thing. But each word is chosen to highlight a different facet of God's outworking in that gift. In verse 4, varieties of gifts are used to speak of the work of the Spirit. And that makes sense as this entire section is all about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But then in verse 5, when referring to the work of the Lord, which is in the New Testament, the common name for the second person of the Godhead, that is the Son, the word service is used to highlight the focal point of Christ's earthly ministry. After all, Mark 10.45 tells us 
that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And then in verse 6, lastly, God, the term for the Father, is matched with both activities as well as the empowering of those activities. The Father acts in power. When the Old Testament states that God saw, he is never a detached and indifferent observer. His seeing is always accompanied by action to rescue, to judge, to speak, to save, whatever the action is, that's what the Father does. And yet these three, the Spirit, the Son, and the Father, are all referred to here as the same. The same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God. Paul appears to naturally draw for us a picture of one God in three persons, that blessed Trinity. It's a trinity that's working in perfect unity, even as they do so in different modes or different manners. Now, this ought to be a perfect picture for us to imitate in the church, a way to achieve real unity, recognizing that we can all work in different ways with our gifts for this one same focus, this one same confession. But you and I know that we all struggle even to live out our lives in harmony with one another as friends and even within our marriage. And God has given us another picture there, the beautiful picture of Christ as the groom and the church as the bride. And there, like here, it's our pride that often gets in the way. Like in marriage, like in relationships, even in the church, what we as individuals really value is recognition and power, and glory. You know it to be both rare and refreshing when someone truly serves in the background or quietly leads a ministry. What is more common is for individuals to draw attention to themselves and to their decisions to either lead a ministry or support a ministry or tell you why they're not going to be involved in a particular ministry. And when questioned or challenged, with feelings hurt, I'll say with pride wounded, they might leave that ministry group or perhaps even the church altogether. What a contrast Paul sets before us of the Trinity. Within the Trinity, the Son seeks to glorify the Father, and the Holy Spirit works to glorify the Son. Notice Paul highlighting the work of the Spirit. My wife was speaking about this yesterday on a hike, how the Holy Spirit is always giving glory. Here the focus is on the giving of gifts, the giving of right doctrine and true confession. And elsewhere in the scriptures we'll see, and you know that the Holy Spirit gives comfort, the Holy Spirit gives counsel, the Holy Spirit even gives sanctifying rebuke. The Holy Spirit is truly a great giver, and notice why he gives. Verse 7, for the common good. Spiritual gifts are not for your good, and they're not for my good, at least as individuals. They're not for bragging rights or ego boosts. They are for the common good. Uh, Verse 11 drives that point home, that all the gifts 
that all of these gifts are gifts, and I might add undeserved gifts from the Holy Spirit. You can read in verse 11 that they are portioned to each one as he, the Holy Spirit, sees fit or as he wills. It is God who decides which gifts he wants to give us, and then apparently the level of power of those gifts. The Holy Spirit apportions and empowers to each one individually. And then Paul does include a list of gifts here. And some of you may have been waiting this whole sermon for the unpacking of a particular gift. I can't wait till he says something about miracles or discernments of spirits or tongues. And if that's what you are waiting for, you will be disappointed. Paul does include a list here, but he doesn't seem to include the list to speak about the particular gifts, but rather to make the simple point that whatever the diverse gift is that the Holy Spirit has chosen to give you, the point of that gift is for the common good, for the unity and for the building up of the church. Gordon Fee notes, this list isn't about numbers or kinds of gifts. That is a fascination of a later time. You and I live in that later time, and we are fascinated by this list. This list is one of four lists that Paul records in the New Testament. Another one of his four lists is in, starts in chapter 28 of, or verse 28 of this same chapter. There's a list in Ephesians 4. There's a list in Romans 12. And in those four different lists, There is only one gift that is mentioned in all four lists. That's the gift of prophecy. And so clearly none of those lists are exhaustive. None are really definitive. And it's very difficult to understand the nuances between some of these gifts. Take, for instance, the gift of the utterance of wisdom and the utterance of knowledge in our text today. What's the difference there? Now, some suggest that Knowledge is the understanding of facts, and wisdom is the ability to reason and rightly apply those facts into our life. Certainly, that is worth considering, especially in today's world with a superabundance of shallow knowledge. Hey, Siri, give me some obscure fact to impress my friends. I was just waiting for a second to see if any, anybody's phone would actually share some obscure fact with us. But you know how that is. Knowledge detached from wisdom. But that's not how Paul uses these terms. In fact, throughout his writings, knowledge and wisdom are often interchangeable. So Paul's speaking to something else, and he doesn't share with us exactly what that is. And what about the gift of faith? Aren't we all given faith? That's certainly what Ephesians 2, 8 says. For by faith you are saved, and that is a gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. And yet to some, they're given the gift of faith. Often to endure perhaps a particular hardship, and to endure that hardship in such a way that they show forth the beauty of Christ to a church. You know people in our own congregation that have suffered greatly in such a beautiful way that you see them 
and can't help but giving praise to our loving Father in heaven. Again, there's a tendency here to be distracted by the gifts, by the flash of the gifts, by their appeal, by their ability to enhance us, by their ability to give us a certain power. In a word, maybe even to build up our pride, to elevate our glory. And that's perhaps why Paul so quickly passes over the list, uh, stopping regularly throughout the list to say, by the same spirit, by the same spirit, reminding us again that these diverse gifts are given to each of us as God wills for the purpose of serving the common good in the church. Our spiritual gifts, our very confessions, are both given to us and for others, for the common good in the church, to be an expression of and a confession of our love for God and our love for one another. When there's unity in confession, there is a great beauty in the diversity of our giftedness. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for your work in our life. Father, we, I, so quick to boast, so quick to feel, to think of myself and to rejoice in gifts that you have given me. Instead, rather, to praise you, the great giver, and to glory your son in whose image I'm being made, and to rejoice in the faithful work of the Holy Spirit who gives to us freely and without reproach. Father, thank you for your work. We ask that you would remind us again that our very confession comes even from you. And we praise the name of Jesus. Amen.